So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And uh, we spent a good deal of time last week uh, talking about, I really didn't focus on Titus, um, but it was a situation where the Apostle Paul was very, honestly, I mean, he was worried about the Corinthian church to the point of distraction. And I showed you the map and all of that last week. So I'll let you go back to last week's Bible study uh, if you want to understand what was going on geographically and also uh, in the timeline as far as uh, what the Apostle Paul went through with the Corinthian church. Uh, He had started the church, spent 18 months there. He left there with uh, Priscilla and Aquila, who he had met there, fellow tent makers. He left them in Ephesus, obviously knowing that he was going to have a ministry there. He went all the way back to Caesarea, and uh, it's a port city that's down right at the edge of what we know as the Holy Land. And uh, there he docked, and then he went to Jerusalem, and then he, he apparently took the land route, back over through um, the Galatian region and ended up back in Ephesus again. And it is from Ephesus that he sends these Corinthian letters. So he's been away from Corinth for a while and they've already developed these, um, these challenges, these struggles. So 1 Corinthians addresses a number of those. One of them that I mentioned last week that we think, or at least many ancient scholars believe, is the source of uh, this conflict that we see here addressed in 2 Corinthians where he says, you know, comfort this person and so forth, was the the man who was intimately engaged with his father's wife. Um, you know, this wasn't his mother, but it was his stepmother. And um, it was something that the Apostle Paul reacted viscerally and immediately to and essentially out of hand uh, excommunicated the guy. And as I indicated last week, there was probably some, uh, this may have been a prominent individual. So there was probably some blowback from the Corinthian church and uh, there may have been some disrespect that was given to the Apostle Paul. The result was that he made a painful visit to them. He sent a, a very harsh letter to them. And after the painful visit where he, he left and everything was really kind of still up in the air, apparently they hadn't repented um, the challenges that he thought he was going to be able to address and overcome uh, don't seem to have been overcome. So this is after 1 Corinthians, okay? And then he makes the painful visit. And then he sends the he sends the harsh letter. And now he's trying to discover what the response to that harsh letter is. Well, we actually already know by the writing of 2 Corinthians, if you want to jump ahead, I even considered doing this. Uh, if you want to jump ahead to 2 Corinthians 7, you can see that there was positive resolution, uh, at least... Um, mainly there was positive resolution and the apostle Paul, this is what's behind him saying, Hey, comfort this person and don't continue to hold things against them and so forth. And there's, there's hope. I think then for us, uh, if you've been through uh, some, some 
difficulty, some situations where perhaps you would be ashamed. There are people that won't come to church because of uh, things that they have faced. And maybe in part that's because of church people not being accepting, but it could be because of a sense of shame that they have. Uh, But in the end, if we repent, um, the Lord receives us, right? Uh, You know, confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Justify yourself and justify your sins and you die in your sins. So if you, if you want to be made right, you've got to confess where you have done wrong and the Lord will make you right. But if you try to say that what you're doing is right, then you end up being in the wrong on the whole. Okay. Um, so there was just a huge struggle here. And the Apostle Paul leaves it hanging at this point in the letter where he says he, he was looking for uh, Titus, who is the, uh, the emissary that he sent, the, the uh, messenger with the letter. And uh, Titus is a prominent figure in the Apostle Paul's ministry. And when we come back to this narrative in chapter 7, we'll talk more about Titus. Um, but last week we, we saw that he left Ephesus, he went to Troas, uh, he saw some opportunities to preach there, but he was just so distracted that he boarded a ship, went across the Aegean Sea, and went to Macedonia. Macedonia is north of Achaia, which is where Corinth is, and this is all in the Greek region. Um, and that's where he leaves off, Okay. And then he launches into this lengthy theological uh, portion to the letter that's very uh, important for us. It's probably why the Lord um, preserved this letter, because it's very inspired. So now we're going to look at verse 14, where he gets into this theology. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 2.14, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, that is of Christ, everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So that concludes the chapter. So this idea of being in Christ's triumphal train, um, to interpret that metaphor, we need to understand um, Roman military culture. Uh, Rome was a military nation. They conquered people. That's they were in they they in the end were an empire. But even during the days of the Republic, when the Senate was uh, was controlling Rome, they were a military nation. They went and they conquered other peoples. Um, so even before before it became an empire under. Um, Julius Caesar, Rome's armies had gradually taken over the, the Western world. So all around the coast of the Mediterranean, uh, all of that belonged to Rome uh, during Paul's day. Um, Roman control stretched all the way from Egypt to the British Isles. So even beyond the coast of the Mediterranean, um, from North Africa to the Black Sea. 
For hundreds of years, Rome celebrated each contra, uh, each conquest, excuse me, with a great military parade. So you have to imagine this, right? The defeated people were led through the streets while musicians played and pagan priests burned incense. So there's the aroma idea that we just read about. So you need to, you need to think about that incense, right? Um, and these pagan priests worshiping these, you know, these false gods uh, with their, their music and their worship songs as they go through the streets and they have all of these, uh, a representative group of the conquered people behind them. Um, at the end of the parade, they took a group among the conquered and put them to death as a sacrifice to these false gods. You know, here, we thank you that you, you've allowed us to conquer these people and then they just killed them. So you can understand how if you were a Roman and you were proud of your nation and of their conquest of these people, right? And, you know, it's how you frame this, right? So right now, uh, Russia is at war with the Ukraine, which was formerly a part of the USSR when, you know, Russia was uh, part of, or they were the, the, the uh, responsible party in power uh, in the so-called United Soviet Socialist Republic. And that all fell apart in the 90s. And so Russia kind of pulled back into itself um, Yet I have to understand that Vladimir Putin is very much still in that USSR mindset. And he wants control of Ukraine because Ukraine has a lot of resources that they want control over. Ukraine hasn't done anything to them. There's not been any sort of aggression from Ukraine toward Russia. But they are waging war against the Ukraine right now. And if you look at... Uh, the way Russia is framing that to their citizenry, they're making Ukrainians look like they're primitives, uh, like they're Nazis. They have to turn them into um, villains. Now, honestly, this is any time a nation goes to war with another nation, they're going to vilify the other nation. Now, there may be reasons for that. There may not be reasons for that. Okay, um, the United States was drawn into World War II after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor. Um, both the Japanese and the Germans had designs to take over their portions of the world. Who knows what would have happened had they both been successful and then had to fight each other? But the uh, you know the Lord um, stepped in, I believe, and this nation was empowered to help push back those oppressors. So uh, World War II was a very, very dangerous time. Um, there were two fronts and two nations trying to destroy the world and take over the world. And they, they were really both um, had the same mindset. Um, both the, the Japanese imperialists and the, the Nazis believed that their people were essentially, as the Nazis put it, the master race. 
And so everyone needed to be under their control. So, you know, you justify that to your people. Um, I am personally in disagreement with uh, the United States' choice to drop uh, atomic bombs on Japan. But I understand the rationale that was used behind that. The people of Japan were deceived into believing that they all needed to fight, regardless of whether they were in the army or not. And had the United States military had to land and fight through Tokyo, for example, they would have been fighting from house to house and street to street um, through a people that refused to be conquered. Uh, Those atomic bombs broke the back of the Japanese will. Again, I still think that it was wrong because there were so many innocent people that were decimated as a result of that. Um, And there are plenty of people that would disagree with me there. But um, nonetheless, this is validated in the minds of the conquering nation. That's what happened with Rome. Now, why do I go into all this detail with Japan and Germany and Rome? Because what, what I want you to understand is when they see the conquest, they think that's a good thing. Okay? So whatever is associated with that, the flag, the music, the incense, that stands for victory, right? Now, it's interesting that the Apostle Paul uses um, incense here and uh, the, the, uh, the sense of smell, okay? He says, Christ leads us in triumphal procession. So the military procession that the Rome, Romans led was their triumphal procession. But Paul is putting Jesus at the head of that triumphal procession. He's saying Jesus has conquered. So not in some illicit way or some violent way, but conquered as the result of love, as we know. And he says, and he, that he threw us, Jesus threw us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So if you really represent Jesus, you're like that incense, okay? You're the, you're the fragrance of Christ everywhere you go. So I think I might've mentioned this in brief last week when I introduced this passage. Um, but I think that the greatest reminder of this to me is not incense, but it is the smell of largely roses, okay? So I walk down this little catwalk here. That's what it's become, this sidewalk over here um, toward intrinsic. And right next to intrinsic is Rowlett Florists, okay? And... uh, We've purchased flowers from them for a variety of different reasons. I purchased flowers from them for funerals, right? They do that a lot. You buy a spray and so forth. Have you been to a funeral in the last, I don't know, not too long? The smell of flowers is overwhelming, isn't it? Typically, right? And so what can happen and what has happened with me is that that smell is associated with death. It's a beautiful smell, but I don't associate it with anything beautiful, right? So I walk past, and I knew that the Lord was going to use this as I walked past. Rowlett Florist, their, their doors were open, 
And as I walked past, this overwhelming aroma, largely of roses, roses have a very powerful smell, okay, came wafting out of that, uh, that uh, shop. And my mind immediately went to funeral. So you see, that smell is just a smell, but it represents death in my mind. I've officiated funerals for, you know, many years, and that's the immediate association that I have. But your association with roses and the smell of roses might be different, right? You might associate the smell of roses with something wonderful and amazing and beautiful, and it might give you, you know, positive feelings and, and, and very, very um, wonderful thoughts. Well, that's exactly what we're talking about here. Now, let's, let's take where that analogy leads us. If you represent Jesus, people that are, that are in rebellion against God are not going to like you. Right? And again, this is something I've said before, but when I tell people that I'm a pastor, there's an automatic reaction. It's very rarely a neutral reaction. Okay? It is either a, oh, great. Okay? Or, oh, really? Yeah, well, where are you, where are you the pastor? Because that, in their mind represents Jesus or represents God, right? And they have a certain attitude. People in this church, I will watch what happens. When people get in sideways with God, they don't like me very much. They don't want to talk to me. They won't look at me. They won't greet me. Now, I don't jump on them and say, hey, man, what's going on? What's your problem? You got a problem with me, huh? Oh, no, I know what it is. You got a problem with Jesus. Because then all I'm going to do is confirm their suspicion, right? That God is a big meanie and I'm his spokesman, so I'm a meanie as well. Man, when people don't like God, if you represent the Lord, if, if you know, you've tried to speak uh, the truth to them, you've tried to teach them the word or represent Jesus to them, they're not going to like you either. And you just need to realize that that's just going to be the case. Jesus said, if they don't like me, they're not going to like you. The reason they don't like you is because they don't like me. That's what he said. If they're my enemies, they're going to be your enemies. If you're like, well, I know you don't like Jesus, but you can at least like me. If you represent Jesus, they're not going to like you either. Now, that shouldn't be because you're being hateful, superior, sanctimonious, whatever, uh, excessively religious. I, I have tried, and maybe, uh, I don't know, too hard, um, to not be a religious pastor. I want to represent Jesus, but I don't want to represent religion, okay? I don't, honestly, I don't like religion. There is a religious spirit. Mary and I have talked about this on a number of occasions. There really is. I think the devil is the one that's responsible for that religious spirit, that sanctimonious, judgmental, legalistic. It's a religious spirit. It's creepy. It's just creepy, all right? I don't like it. And when people come on 
to me like that. And they think, you know, oh, here's a pastor. He's on my side. I'm like, really? I'm not. I don't, I don't want that. I don't want to be a part of that. When I graduated from Baylor back in the uh, Jurassic era, um, <laughs> I checked out of ministry for a while because I just didn't want to be the back then, you know, patent leather shoe, polyester suit wearing preacher. I just didn't, I just didn't fit that. I didn't fit the mold. I still don't fit the mold. Right. I mean, you know, I don't have the wife that sings in the choir and, you know, the cute little cherubs and I just don't fit that. I don't fit the mold. Although that's, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just, I don't fit that. And so from the time I graduated for three years, I worked in a foster care group home. Um, I started as a youth counselor and I ended up becoming the, um, the program director, uh, a position that should have required a master's degree in social work. But I was just good at what I did and I cared about those kids, right? Um, but I knew that the Lord had called me to preach and I couldn't escape that responsibility. And so I ended up coming out here uh, and going to Southwestern Seminary. Honestly, never felt like I really belonged there either. I just didn't. All these other preacher boys, I'm just like, I'm just not like you, right? And they weren't all bad. They're not, listen, we just, I don't want to be in the same position as worldly people that just see all preachers as, you know, religious. But there's just a lot of that religious spirit among those in ministry. And I've never wanted to be part of that. Unfortunately, people will inadvertently inappropriately associate you with religion or religious people if you talk about God, if you talk about praying, if you talk about the Bible, any of those things. The thing you got to do is just be genuine. And that's what the Apostle Paul gets to um, at the, the end of this. He says, who's sufficient for these things? He, he, you know, who, who, who can measure up is what he's saying to what God has called us to. Um, and then he says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word, right? So he said, we're not out here just to get your money. And that, honestly, that has a lot to do with um, a religious spirit. There, it, it seems like there's always money involved, doesn't there? When I was a kid, uh, my grandma, bless her heart, uh, bless her soul. She passed away a long time ago. In fact, she passed away the year after I graduated from college. Um, she used to always send me these publications um, and they were from a variety of different ministries. They always asked for money. Now, political publications are the same way. Every time something happens, there is this huge push. Oh, you know, the sky is falling. The sky is falling. You've got to give us money. That's true. So this thing happened with, uh, with Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Okay. I, if you don't know, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump. Um, I appreciate some of the decisions and things that he did while he was in office because I think they benefited people of faith. I don't think that he did that out of a good heart, <laughs> but <coughs> I'm not trying to judge his motives. 
Um, but I do think that he did that because he had a base of support that said, hey, wow, okay, we're on your side. But I think that he would do whatever for anybody that supported him. Um, there's a side of me that hopes they find something illegal there so he can't run again. Okay, you may hate me for saying that. But I don't think that what they've done is right. I really don't. Um, they've gone out there. It, it, basically, it was a search uh, that was in search of a crime, right? They're, they, they're saying, well, we, he's got to have done something wrong, and so we're going to make that happen, okay? Um, there are people that um, are religious people that are very much in favor of him. He will support whoever supports him. These are religious people who will support whatever and whoever supports them. If you donate to my church, if you donate to my cause, right? So I checked out of getting publications from Donald Trump and his organization a long time ago. And all of a sudden, as soon as that Mar-a-Lago raid happened, I started getting these emails. Send us money, send us money, send us money, send us money. They just use it as an excuse. Religious folks have been like this forever, okay? You know, I need a new jet. Uh, you know, I, I, I need to be able to, you know, support my TV ministry or whatever it is. Um, I put some of these down. This is from several years ago. But this will uh, this will be a good example. Um, hang on, just one second. As soon as I get to this, um, oh, here's the example that I gave. I'm trying to rem remind myself. Um, when I was in college, those of us preparing for ministry were in awe of a pastor by the name of Paul Yonggi Cho. Uh, he was uh, from Korea. And his church was called the Yoido Full Gospel Fellowship. And at that time, again, when I graduated, I, I graduated in 1985. Now y'all are going to know I'm old. Um, but back then, that church had 100,000 members, one church. I don't know if there's a church in the United States that has that many members, okay? As of the writing of the, the last time I went through 2 Corinthians, which I think was 2014, that church had a million members. So every time you have one major leader and it's an organization like that, it doesn't matter whether it's political or religious, money ends up, greed ends up being a problem, okay? So um, apparently, I think when I looked this up, the guy is known as David Yonggi Cho, and as of the writing of my notes previously, again, I think this is 2014, he had been convicted of embezzling 13 billion won, that's about 12 million U.S. dollars, and his son, Cho Hee Jun, was at the center of an embezzlement scheme and was also convicted. In 1984, the year before I graduated from Baylor, uh, I went back to Phoenix for a semester. I won't get into the details of why I did that. Um, but I met Paul Crouch of the TBN network. Have you all heard of Paul and Jan Crouch? They've both passed away now, okay? They're the founders of TBN. And I remember I was working at a men's clothing store at a mall, 
and he came in. Now, I've never been a big watcher of Christian TV, but you still, you know, this is before the era of cable and it was one of the, uh, the UHF channels that you could tune into. So I'd seen him on TV and he comes walking into my clothing store. I'm like, oh, dude, I know you, <laughs> right? And his wife, Jan Crouch, came in and she had like this, this veil over her head. And she wouldn't talk to anybody but him. She like, it was really creepy and weird, okay? She would like sidle up to him and whisper in his ear and then she would like, so I think what happened and what I was told was that people like when they saw her, they would like try to touch her and grab her and paw her and all this other stuff. Um, well, as of the writing of these notes, again, that was 2014, I believe, uh, he had died at the age of 79. And at that point in time, TBN was embroiled in a sordid financial scandal and it had been for a couple of years. Brittany Coper uh, was Paul Crouch's granddaughter and the former chief financial officer for TBN. She was accusing TBN directors of illegally distributing $50 million for their personal use. This includes the purchase of a $100,000 motorhome for co-founder Jan Crouch's dogs. Meanwhile, TBN lawyers were accusing Ms. Coper of embezzling around 400000 So she's accusing them. They're accusing her of embezzling $400,000 during her service. At the, It's just on and on and on, all right? Uh, there is a watchdog organization. I think it's still in existence. Um, it's headed by a, a gentleman named, uh, named Ole Anthony. The watchdog organization is called the Trinity Foundation. They have their own little quasi-church up in Dallas, okay? Um, <laughs> he calls TBN a spiritual and moral snake pit. His organization, Ole Anthony's organization, is uh, has was founded in 1972 to, quote, monitor and investigate religious fraud. And if you want to check it out, their website is trinityfi.org and it reports various sometimes outrageous things being done in the name of God by religious leaders. Now again, these are uh, older uh, incidents uh, from my notes. This is as of like eight years ago. Uh, Mega church pastor Stephen Furtick, this is Elevation Church, uh, their band Elevation Worship I, I love, but as of this point in time, uh, his $1.7 million home in North Carolina and the issues associated with million-dollar salaries and book deals. It's uh, Listen, uh, pastors were not intended to be celebrities. I'm sorry. If you're following a celebrity religious leader, that's you're following somebody other than Jesus. And maybe they're preaching the word and maybe they're not, but that's just not. That's the way 1 Corinthians started. Paul said, why are you dividing and identifying yourself? I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. He said, who are we? It's, you're supposed to follow Jesus, not some pastor, right? You're sure, I want to lead you, but I want to lead you to Jesus. I want you to follow him. Follow me as I follow Christ, but I don't even want the responsibility. These guys get elevated to these positions and they make obscene salaries, ridiculous amounts of money. Um... Pastor Ivy Hillard, 
or Hilliard, I guess, of New Light Church World Outreach was asking, as of this time of the writing of these notes, was asking his followers for donations to purchase a helicopter. (laughs) Apparently, a Gulfstream jet was not enough. They need to upgrade their blades. Okay. Todd Kuntz, who promoted himself as Dr. Todd Kuntz, author and financial teacher, was often heard to request miracle seed gifts. His favorite amount to ask for is $273 per donor. He states that the greatest miracle of the personal life occurred, of his personal life, excuse me, occurred with the numbers two, seven, and three. So apparently he plays the lottery. Interestingly, he lives in a $1.38 million condo on the seventh floor of a high-rise, and his unit number is 273. Listen, folks, I don't know that our church is ever going to even, you know, I hope we can own our own building someday or something. I hope I can buy a house someday. That would be great. Um, But I guarantee you I'm not living in a million-dollar house. That's I'm so I, I'm just going to be honest. Nobody needs to live in a million dollar house. You don't. You just don't. It's not necessary. You may justify it in your mind, but it's not necessary. It's obscene, ostentatious, conspicuous consumption. Further, nobody needs to be driving around in a hundred thousand dollar car, or two hundred thousand dollar car, or five. It's unnecessary. It's ridiculous. Okay. Now. People in the world are going to do that. But if you see somebody that is taking donations and they're doing that, it is wrong. I said it here with my little group of people. And I'm not popular and we don't get a lot of donations. So I guess, yeah. But I'm not going to change. I got to stand before God in judgment and I don't want to be anywhere near where those guys have to stand. Then uh, chapter 3. This is chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he talks about letters of recommendation. Apparently that was used by these teachers that came into Corinth that were drawing a following away from Paul and away from the gospel. They had somehow gotten some sort of a letter of recommendation from other recognized apostles, okay? Well, that's what we do today, right? Um, If you want to get a job, you have a resume, and often they will ask for letters of recommendation. It used to be Um, If you were a member of a church and you moved to another city, for example, um, you would get a, uh, you would, well, they would, they would call it transferring your letter. It was usually just a form letter 
that said so-and-so was a, he was a member in good standing of our church. So you didn't have to do anything to join their church. Let's say it's a, it's a Southern Baptist church. Then you would go to another Southern Baptist church and you would move your letter. That's a letter of recommendation. This Southern Baptist church in this city said, hey, this person was a member in good standing. And so this church would say, okay, you can be a member of our church. You didn't have to jump through any hoops, essentially. Okay. Huh, that doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> People just leave churches and go somewhere else. And the other church says, hey, that's great. We're glad you came to our church. And it doesn't matter what you've done at the previous church because they're not going to check. And I can tell you that because I've seen that for years and years and years. In the early days of this church, I'm telling you guys, it was like the Wild West around here. None of y'all would have been able to handle it. You wouldn't have. Just imagine being in a church with a bunch of 16 to 24-year-olds with wild hormones. Um, yeah, it was crazy back then. And uh, so... I had to try to do church discipline. We had a couple of folks that were in leadership and they were sleeping around. And this is a constant issue if, well, I, I, it's not just with single people. As I said a couple of weeks ago, uh, I heard a, a minister at a larger church say that they spend all of their time trying to keep the single people out of bed with each other and the married people in bed with each other. It's just hopping around, hopping around, hopping and hopping and hopping, right? And so, listen, we all have our issues. It's, I understand, but I, I'm talking about somebody that's on the stage, visible, and so I was trying to be as sensitive as I could, and man, that's really, that, you know, I didn't kick them out of the church or anything like that. I just said, you can't be in leadership, and we're going to go through this process and try to help you to get into the situation you need to be in to marry this person and so forth. And they ended up not wanting to do that. There was another young person uh, that was in leadership. I mean, they were all young, but this one was, I think, like 17 or 18. And, you know, he just left our church and went to a big church. And I could name the church right now. That church didn't ask anything. They just put him on stage with his guitar and he started singing because he could sing good. So it just doesn't matter. You can't hold people accountable anymore. But the Apostle Paul did. He sought to do that. So the Apostle Paul said, so do we need letters to you or from you? Two different kinds of letters. A recommendation to you from other people that you respect more than me. And the Apostle Paul said, you're our letter. You're written on our hearts. Here, we're going to come bring the letter. You wrote the letter of recommendation to you. It's how we love you and how we've treated you and how we've ministered to you. That's the letter. And then he said, oh, how about a letter from you? Well, that's written on your heart too, right? It's what God has done in your life through us. They're just not remembering. And, you know, this... This gets me to the core. I know people that I've ministered to for years and years, and they just walk away. They just walk away. The culture we're living in now validates a whole lot of sin, and people choose to follow a sinful lifestyle 
or they choose to just disbelieve in God rather than continue on in the faith. And it, as I said a couple of weeks ago, it hurts. When you love people, I, I want you to, you know, many of you in this room have kids. What happens when your kid is rebellious? What happens when your kid just decides to go out and do what they want to do and hurt themselves and hurt other people and violate the standards, the values that you sought to instill in them? Does that not hurt? It hurts. It hurts. And we care. So we pray and we try to strive with them. And we want them to go the right direction. I'm just telling you guys, you can't control them, especially when they get older, but you can't give up on them. You've got to keep fighting for them. And even when they stop listening to you, you've got to keep praying for them. And you've got to handle it with tough love. Listen, you don't need your kid to like you. You need your kid to listen to you and do what you've asked them to do when you've asked them to do what's right. And eventually they're going to come back around and appreciate what you told them, right? Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. So, you know, I've got kids that I've struggled with and strived with, and now they've grown up, you know, the three boys that I've often mentioned uh, to you all, the, the last three young people I dealt with, um, were the most difficult young people I've ever dealt with, and I dealt with foster care group kids, okay? One of them passed away. One of them is in jail. And one of them seems to be doing okay right now, though I don't know that he's really in church all the time. It hurts. It really, really hurts. So I'm saying this not so you'll feel sorry for me or anything like that. I'm trying to help you to understand the way the Apostle Paul feels about this church. He said, "We're look, the letter is right here. It's written on our hearts, our love for you, right? It's written by the Spirit of God, not on tablets of paper or stone, but with the Spirit of God, right? If you're any kind of parent, you love your kids. If you're any kind of pastor, you love your congregation. But... As a pastor, I have less control over a congregation than you do over your kids. And you may feel like you don't have any control over your kids, but I guarantee you, I don't have any control over you. All I can do is preach the truth. And not everybody even comes and listens. And what do I do? Call them on the phone and say, I'm gonna preach a sermon to you right now. You know, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's like when you're, you're, a, you're a mother or a grandmother and, and you get older and you try to call your kids and you try to, you know, tell them what they need to be doing and how they need to change. They don't want to listen to you anymore. Like, eh, 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 eh. right? So this is the Apostle Paul, right? He says, you are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts. That's the letter to you, to be known and read by all. So everybody can see that we love you. Everybody can see what we are, are willing to sacrifice for you. Um, the Apostle Paul said that, you know, they're willing to spend he and the other apostles, we're willing to spend and be spent for you. We'll, we'll give you everything we have. Listen, 
the Lord can give me another job. I would do this for free. I, I'm not doing this for money. I'm getting money because I need to live, okay? But I've been getting the same salary for pretty close to 20 years. So I'm not doing this for money, right? If I was doing this for money, I would have moved on to a bigger church, greener pastures a long time ago. You got to love your people. You got to do what you got to do, right? And then um, he says, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. So there he's showing his confidence in them. He's saying, listen, I know that God has made a difference in you, even though right now we're not getting along and there's rebellion in this church. I know that God has worked in your life, okay? And that's what you have to realize when there are people in your life that maybe they're not living the way they should right now, but that doesn't mean that they will always be that way. If you've seen fruit in their lives, then you know that fruit is gonna continue, okay? And then verse six of chapter three, uh, he says, who's made us sufficient? Uh, Who's made us enough to do this? We're, we're worthy. We're made enough. We're sufficient because of God who's made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. And we'll get into this next week. I like this phrase for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. That's deserving of its own little time period. Earlier, I talked about a religious spirit. That's the letter kills. You better obey. You better do what's right. Pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. That's the letter that kills. Like when you just get that that feeling of just tenseness and, you, oh, you know, yes, okay, I, and I'm so horrible, I'm bad, I'm terrible. That, that's the letter that kills. The law convicts but we're set free from the law because we are in a relationship with God through Jesus and a new covenant, a new contract, a new way of relating by the spirit. So we'll talk about that more next week. Guys online, thanks for joining us. Those of you here, thank you for coming.